There's a place in a book in the Bible called Revelation that tells us that at this present moment, there is something happening that while we can't see it, it is happening just in the supernatural realm. We're told that there are entire armies of angels that are singing around the throne of Jesus right now. And that there's even creatures that we don't know how to describe and we've not yet seen or realized even exist that stand around the throne of Jesus. And with voices like that, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like that, that's happening right now. Like was that, that's incredible, right? That's amazing. That felt good. That was awesome. Do you, do you realize at this very moment, even though they just exited the stage, there is an army of angelic beings that are continuing to echo those words in eternity at the feet of Jesus right now. And sometimes when I hear choirs, actually, I think all the time when I hear a choir sing, it makes me think of that and that one day we get to be there. Like we have the opportunity to stand among them at the throne of Jesus and see him. He's not just an idea. He's not just a thought. He's a person. He's real. He's the God who created everything. And one day we have this opportunity to stand in front of him and actually look at him and hear that reverb throughout all of heaven as they just sing, holy, holy, holy is God. I just, I'm so thankful for moments like that and talent like that that just gives us this appetizer of what's yet to come. And the words, too. Like, like there's this line in that song that they were just singing. Your presence is home. You know, like, like home just has this ability, the thought of it, the place of it, the memory of it. Even sometimes the smell of it has the ability to just give this calm over you. Like whenever I'm away, I don't know if you do this, when I'm traveling, I always, if I start to get homesick, all I got to do is pull out my phone, look at my three kids, look at my wife, and I just get transported. No matter where I'm at, I get this feeling of being home, like this peace and this comfort, right? Experiences can do it. Pictures can do it. Smells can do it. We even have the phrase that we use a lot, home is where the what? So the heart is because there are just things in life that have this incredible ability to like transport us from wherever we're at to this place of comfort and peace, this this feeling of, of home. And what that song points to is, in part, it's the direction we're going to go this morning. What that song points to is this truth that's written all throughout the scriptures that there is no greater place of home for your heart than living in the presence of Jesus and for the purposes of Jesus. There's no greater place for your home to find, your heart to find home. And, and here's the thing. I know that some of you in this room, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you're trying to figure out if that's true. Maybe that's even part of why you're here today. You're like, I'm going to try this church thing and figure out this God thing. And I want you to know a few things. Number one, I'm glad you're here. You belong here. Because we, like, we made this place for you. I love saying that. We made this place for you because we wanted a place where you could come with questions, with doubts, with disagreements, and have the conversation that I think is an attempt to answer the most important questions that we'll ever ask. Is there a God? Who is he and what does he want? But I would also tell you this, for all of you, God's constant invitation is the same to every one of us. I want your heart to find home with me. I want your heart to find home with me. I will be the greatest place of home your heart will ever know. Of peace, of comfort, of purpose. That's his invitation to us all. If you are here with us last week, we launched a series off, Sermon from the Seats, which if this is new to you and you're just joining us, the whole reason for this series is that we really do believe that sometimes the best messages don't come from the stage. They come from those seats. 
They come from the things that God is doing in your life and that you're letting God do through your life. And so we have a month of trying to tell your stories, stories of people who are letting God do incredible things in them and through them. The same opportunity and invitation that we all have, but we want to make sure those stories are told. Because you are the church, not this stage, not just this platform, not this building, not me. You are the church. And so we want those stories told. And last week, our lead pastor, Steve Andrews, he started the whole series off. And there was this one line he gave. My wife and I were sitting over there somewhere. And, and when he said it, it was like, man, I needed to be here for that today. He said, your pain can become your platform. And I think, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I even had this moment last night. I was just thinking back over the last number of years, like five about of my life. And there are some really incredible moments in the last five years of my life. And there are also some very painful moments in the last five years of my life. And it was like in that moment, God just went, hey, you need to hear this. Part of the things that still bring emotion to your eyes, to your heart, some of that pain are the very things I am lifting you above to set you on top of, that they would become the platform for how I will keep using you. And the same is true for all of us. So here's what I want to talk about today. The direction I want to go today is really the direction that song pointed us in. More specifically than just God's presence is our home and our greatest home, but that I think the greatest home for us is also not just living in his presence, but living for his purposes. So I'm very much convinced that God is here in this place. There's, there's just this incredible promise in the Bible that where even just a couple of us are gathered for his name's sake, he hangs and dwells in that place in a very unique way. And so because of that, I just want to ask that we would know him today, that we would experience him somehow, wherever you're at, on the spectrum of faith, whether you're trying to figure it out or whether you're fully convinced and fully devoted, I just want to pray that God gives us the ability to receive what he has for us today. So let me pray for you. Father in heaven, who's also here in this place, I just more than anything else for this moment right now, I want to acknowledge you as Lord God, maker and creator of all things. You are so good. You are so present to us. You are so loving to us. And what an incredible thing that you who made us would also do life with us. You don't need us, and yet you choose to love us. And you don't keep yourself distant, like in heaven somewhere and floating through the cosmos, that you actually, you meet with us, you walk with us, you commune with us. And God, you who are here in this place, we just acknowledge you and acknowledge your presence. And my request of you this morning, God, is that you would help us to hear from you. We do not need to hear from me. We all need to hear from you. So I pray that my words would be your words. And I pray that your spirit would give an ability this morning for all of us to catch something from your mouth that enables us to walk out of here changed and different than when we came in. Thanks for the scriptures that you've given us. Help me to do justice to them as I try to make sense of them this morning. And teach them to us from this stage yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to give you a verse this morning that's going to be kind of the direction that we're going to run for the rest of the day. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up towards the end to a book called James. If you don't have a Bible, if you're still trying to figure out how to navigate the pages of it, we put all the verses on screen, so no worries. James chapter 4, verse 13 says this. Now listen you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to this city or that city and spend a full year there carrying on business and make money. But you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a, say the next word, would you out loud? You're a mist. You're a mist that appears for a little while 
and then vanishes. Now, James is an interesting author in the Bible because if you don't know this, James was actually brother to Jesus. But he didn't start out as a believer in Jesus as God. He didn't start out as a follower. He thought Jesus was nuts. He thought, like many of his family, that Jesus was crazy. But when you watch your brother crucified and then resurrect from the dead, that changes what you think about his claims to be God. So James goes on to become a devoted follower of Jesus, even one of the authors. He's martyred later on for his faith in Jesus as God of creation. And, and I, I almost wonder if, as James writes these words, your life is a mist, you don't know what's going to happen, if there isn't a certain part of him in his review of his own life that is aware that there were days earlier that he lost the opportunity to live himself in devotion to Jesus because he neglected who Jesus was and he went a different direction. And he writes these words that I think are as poignant to his own life as they are to ours. Your life is a mist. And it doesn't matter how long you live. It doesn't matter if you live 100 plus years. Here's the truth. Here's what James is trying to get us to understand. You ready? Here's 112 years of living. That's it. Here's 112 years of living. And you're like, come on, I'm kidding. I could hit you, Steve. I see you out there. It's my hunting buddy. I see my target. It's better than yours. My aim. So your life is a mist. It says, here's your life. It's how quick it goes. And it's over. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is true about every single one of us, regardless of where you're at in your faith journey this morning, is that we are all created to be eternal beings. Which means that this life is not all there is. You have this part of you you don't see called your soul that will go on far beyond this world and this realm. Matter of fact, here's what I want you to look at this rope as for the rest of this morning. This rope is eternity. It is the life that extends beyond this one. Here is your life. This part right here, that's your, I'll give you 85 years. Is that generous? 90. Here's your 90 years right there. This is everything else. And what James says is, this part, in light of the fact that this is the rest of it, this part, it's a mist. And it vanishes so quick. And if that's true, then there's one question that I think should drive our lives like no other. And we'll drive our time together this morning. And it's just simply this question. What are you living your life for? Like really living your life for. Not what you've told people you're living your life for. Not what people think you're living your life for. Like in the deepest parts of who you are, what matters most, what you're pursuing, what you've got to get your hands on. Like what are you living your life for? And here's the follow-up question. Does it matter? Like in the scheme of eternity, whatever you're living your life for, does it, does it really count? Does it really matter? You know how sometimes we can watch people, maybe, maybe you've been guilty of this, who get so tunnel-focused on one thing, maybe like tunnel-focused in their career or tunnel-focused in a relationship or tunnel-focused in a hobby, that they neglect everything else around them, oftentimes their own detriment, like these are the moments where you come to somebody and you go, what were you thinking? Or maybe somebody's even had that conversation with you, like, what were you thinking? Right, where you're so tunnel focused. I saw this story recently online of somebody that did just that. California man accidentally sets apartment on fire trying to kill a spider. Some of you are like, I would burn down the neighborhood to kill a spider, all right? I feel his pain. My brother is my brother right there. Like he burns down a whole, listen, say this with me. Ignore the spider. Just say it, come on, humor me. 
Ignore the spider. Because here's what I wonder. Is it possible that some of us are living our lives like that guy? Because it's so easy to go through life and have the things that we think are so important that we just have to get our hands on that the truth is we're neglecting the larger reality of life all around us while we do. And the really frightening thing is, is that sometimes the spider we're trying to get our hands on, I would even suggest maybe most of the time, it's not bad stuff. We're not talking about the, the contrast of good versus bad here. I'm talking about, is it what God has made you for? Is it the reason he has put you here? A lot of times the spider can be very good, meaningful things, but it's a life-pursuing things that's not what God has made you for and isn't supposed to be the number one thing he has put you here for. That's why one of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Francis Chan. He's an author and a pastor. This is what Chan says about life and our fears and pursuits. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, right? We all are familiar with that. I don't want to fail at a relationship. I don't fail marriage. I don't fail my career. I don't want to be found out as a poser. He says, our greatest fear should actually be success, but success in the things that don't really matter. Success in the things that don't really matter. There's a book I was turned on to recently by a woman named Bonnie Ware. She is a hospice nurse. And over the course of her career, she has sat on the edge of many beds of men and women who are getting to the end of their life. And when you're at the end of your life, you see life different. Your priorities change, your values change. There's regrets you have that you didn't have prior. And, and she writes this book called The Five Regrets of the Dying because she said time after time after time, she would hear these regrets of people that were about to leave this life. And they all seem to be one of five different regrets. Here they are from five down to the number one. Number five, she said, were people wishing that they had let themselves be happier. Number four is people wishing that they had stayed in touch with friends. Number three is people wishing that they had been more courageous to express their feelings. Number two is people wishing that they hadn't worked so hard. So, I mean, this is all the result of people that are chasing the spider. You get the idea? Like they're neglect these are people that realize there were too many moments in life that I went after the spider and I burned down the house. Like I neglected the bigger reality around me. Here's the number one thing, though, that she said time and time again she heard in different verbiage, but all the same regret was this. People wishing that they had had the courage to live their true life and not the life that others expected of them. But what's your true life? Like, how do you know what your true life is? So there's a story that I want us to move to now for the next couple minutes in the Bible in a book called Luke, in the 10th chapter. And there's a story of these two sisters that if you have a church background, you're probably familiar with. These two sisters, Mary and Martha, and there's this story between the two of them that's, that's much that, living your life for what others expect, only the one sister is making a choice not to live her life based on the expectations of this her sister is putting on her, and in doing so, instead, chooses to live for the true reason that she exists. So Luke chapter 10, this is what we read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary. Now Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was, what's the word? Say it. She was distracted, that's going to be important, by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to get up and help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, ignore the spider. You are worried and upset about many things. 
but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So as best we can tell reading through the Bible, this is, this is a group that is a particularly close group of friends to Jesus. They appear in multiple different stories and different settings and different places throughout the Bible. And what's interesting about this situation is you have these two sisters, both of which are friends to Jesus in the presence of Jesus, and yet both whose lives are on a very different trajectory, separated by one word. What was the word? Distraction. See, for Martha, her whole life right now is distracted by everything around her life. But for Mary, her life is focused in on the one thing that gives her life. There's a story uh, from 2000 uh, from a guy named John Piper. Uh, He's an author and pastor, and he spoke at this big conference back in 2000 where thousands of people showed up to hear him speak. And I think I heard it maybe a year after he had, he had given it. I was able to listen to it online. And, and he tells the story of these two different situations of people that ended up making this one sermon become probably one of his most famous sermons. So, so here's what happens. He comes walking out onto the stage, and there's thousands of people in this audience, and he just immediately, he begins this way. He says, I want to tell you something personal that I just found out from my church. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that a woman named Ruby Eliason and another named Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason is over 80 years old, been single her whole life, and is a nurse. But she poured out her life for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest, most unreached places in the world. And then there's Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities and in her retirement, who partnered up with Ruby. She was also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon, the brakes went out on their car, they went over a cliff and instantly into glory. Two women, this is what he says to the audience, in their 80s, whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And then he asked the audience, is that a tragedy that they went over the cliff and died? And he, he kind of pauses them for a moment. He says, let me read one more thing for you. And he pulls out a copy of Reader's Digest and he reads this. Bob and Penny, they took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and will spend the rest of their days collecting shells. And then he looks at the audience and he says, that is a tragedy. Because you have these pictures of these two groups of people. Two of them, although they ended in this blaze of glory, devoted their lives to sit at the feet of Jesus and to the work of Jesus while two others lived their lives only for this side of eternity, that their lives would be summed up by one ultimate end. They collected shells. Life is a mist. The question is, what are you living yours for? And some of you, I know, maybe even right now internally, you're disagreeing with me. And if we were to have a one-on-one conversation, we wouldn't be on the same page. You might say things to me like, hey, listen, I guess I hear what you're saying, but the bottom line is I have to work hard for retirement. Retirement matters. Nobody else is going to take care of me. Uh, Social Security won't be there anyways when I'm there, so what's the big deal? Uh, Besides, it's not bad to enjoy the things I work hard for, or you might point to other people that live more frivolous than you and go, listen, I live much more conservative, and I give, and I do good things for other people. Or you might even try to trump the whole conversation and say, listen, everybody can't live with a Mother Teresa vow poverty. And I would just say back to you, I'm not talking about poverty, houses, or retirement plans. I'm talking about priorities. 
And I would just ask you to have an honest moment with yourself at some point today as to where your heart is and what are you living for? And is it possible that the pursuit of your life is at this point, the trajectory is gonna be about nothing more than eventually collecting seashells? Is it possible that you're living your life in such a pursuit as to get your hands on a spider, whatever that is for you, to the neglect of something far more valuable? Your soul, your purpose, and the very reason God put you on this rock. Isn't that why the Bible teaches at one point that you can gain all of this? You could get it all. Every bit of glory, every bit of fame, every bit of pleasure, every bit of money, every bit of success. You can gain the entire world. You know this? What does the Bible say? You can still lose your what? Your soul. You can still lose your soul in pursuit of everything. I don't think Martha realized this. I think she will eventually. She doesn't get this yet which is why she's doing what so many of us are doing when we're living for the wrong things. We try to get everybody else, including God, to care about what we care about. That's why she goes to Jesus and she says, hey, can you get my sister off of her lazy bum and get in here and help out? Because what I'm doing is important. Make her do what I'm doing. She's like, this matters. I need her to matter. I need her to care about it. I need you, Jesus, to care about it and make her care about it. And what does he say? No. No, I won't. But then he goes even farther. He says, actually, can I be honest, Martha? She's chosen the better thing. Because there's only a few things really needed. And then he even corrects himself. He says, actually, no, one. And she's chosen the better thing. Listen, this is going to sound harsh, but I want to be honest with you. Do you realize there are things that you can pray to God about that he doesn't care about? And it's not because he doesn't care about you. It's because so often what we do is what Martha's doing. We bring a spider to him and go, can you care about this? And he's like, do you realize that is taking life out of you and I want to put life in you? No, I don't care about that. I care about what Mary's learned to do, which is to sit at my feet and make life about me and make her purposes my purposes. And what I love about Mary, this wasn't a one and done situation for her. Like this genuinely was how she lived her life. In another story, an entirely different setting and situation, John chapter 12, Jesus is again with Mary and Martha, and this is what we read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus had lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took up a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was then filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So I have a 16-year-old son. He's the oldest of my three kids. And at any given moment, you can guarantee that you walk into his room and there is a plethora of smell, not all of them good. And some of them are, are Axe body spray and some of them are cologne. And so I had a couple months ago, I had run out of cologne. So I'm like, I know there's something in his room. So I go into his room, and I find his favorite. I think it's Nautica Sport. I was like, psst, psst, psst. And he comes in right in the middle of me using it. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I need a cologne. I'm out of cologne. That's my best cologne. I'm like, I just needed a cologne. Like, That's all I did. He's like, you're going to have to buy me new cologne. So I'm getting, like, so mad at this point. Like, he's arguing about three squirts of cologne. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And then he's telling me i got to buy him a whole new bottle. So not, not the greatest moment, but I snapped back at him, and I said, I gave you life. You can give me cologne. 
He's like, all right, Dad, you can have my cologne for crying out loud. Like, all right. This, this bottle that she pours out on the feet of Jesus is not nautical sport. If you keep reading through the text, the next couple of verses makes it very clear that this is a bottle worth an entire year's worth of salary. I don't know what you make in an entire year, but I'm going to bet there's not a person in the room that's got a bottle of perfume or cologne that costs that much in your house. Like, this is a lot. I don't care what era you live in or what culture you're a part of. Everybody, everybody could use an extra year worth of salary, and I doubt anybody would go spend it on perfume or cologne. So, listen, here's what's important. When you've got a jar of perfume that costs what you make in a year, this is more than just money. There's a story behind this. This is a jar with power. This, is, this represents influence. This represents some kind of accomplishment, success, status. And hear me. What Mary does with that is how I want to live my life. And I pray is how you want to live yours because she dumped every bit of it onto the feet of Jesus and offered it up to him, which is so contrary to the path that many of us are living our lives on. It's not to empty our lives out to Jesus. It's to get everything we can from him. I mean, this is an expensive jar. I had a couple years ago, a friend of mine came to me with a jar, this jar, actually, and she, she was a potter, and she said, this is my most prized collection. And I looked at her, I was like, um, it looks like you made some mistakes. So she tells me the story behind this jar. She says, when it came out of the kiln, there were some things that went wrong, and she went into all the things that went wrong, none of which I understood, so I frankly don't remember. I just remember there was a lot of details she gave me about what went wrong. And she said, and I grabbed it, and I was about to throw it away. And she said, and then I felt like God spoke to me. And she said, and I feel like God said, hey, you see all the the flaws and the mistakes and the cracks, and, and, and you call it worthless? And she says, yeah. And he said, she felt like he was just speaking inside. She kind of hear in her heart, his voice. Felt like he said to her, that's how you see yourself, but I see you as a masterpiece. And what you call a flaw and a mistake is the very imprint of my hands forming you. And so she kept this as her most prized possession, like literally it became the centerpiece in her showroom. She had countless people try to buy it off of her. She constantly told them no. And, and years ago when I told this church I was a part of that I was leaving to go start a church, she brought it to me and she said, God told me to give this to you so that every day that you feel like you're less than, that you feel worthless, that you battle insecurity, that you feel like a failure, I want you to look at this and remember, you are God's masterpiece. Here's why I tell you that story. We all have a jar the jar is your life. This is your jar. And the thing is that most of us will spend our lives trying to fill it, not empty it at Jesus' feet, trying to fill it with things like success, money, power, the right relationships, influence, the right neighborhood to live in, the right body, and we'll just keep filling it and filling it. And then, and then there's other things that end up in this jar as well, like shame, and mistakes, and regret, and brokenness. And what this jar ends up becoming is both what we pursue and feel defined by. And yet what I think God invites us to do with this is what Mary did with it. 
is to learn to take this jar and empty it constantly, daily, at the feet of Jesus to live and sit and dwell in his presence, to make your number one pursuit to know him and to sit in his love, that you would pour yourself into his presence, that you would live for his purposes. Because here's what he does. When you pour yourself out for him, he fills you up. You keep emptying, he keeps filling. You empty, he fills. But what he fills with is himself. His love, his purposes, his priorities, his plans, his values. And ultimately then dumps out of you his legacy. When you live for Jesus being your number one priority and learn to regularly pour yourself out to him, you will end up living a legacy like no other. Which is why last verse I want to give you this morning is from the same story, but it's a different perspective of it, written by Matthew. And Matthew writes a detail that for some reason wasn't included when we read Luke's. So, so Mary pours, or John, pours his perfume out onto Jesus' feet. And here's the detail that Matthew includes about what Jesus said about that moment. Verse 13, chapter 26. Truly I tell you this, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Like Jesus literally sat there in that moment and said, because she did this and poured herself out for me, then everywhere her story will be told. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about this woman who grew up in the Middle East that we, until eternity come, will never meet, but we know part of her story. Some of us are chasing a legacy in life right now that is nothing more than trying to get our hands on a spider. But God's invitation is, if you will pour yourself out to me, stop trying to fill your jar with everything else. Pour yourself out to me. Let me fill it, and I'll teach you the legacy I made you for. We're going to watch a video this morning, again, as continuing on in this series, Sermon from the Seats, of somebody who sat in these seats, somebody who has now passed from this life to the next life. And we're going to hear a story about how she really did do this. Like this was her life, like constantly pouring herself out for the purposes of Jesus and into the presence of Jesus. And as we watch the story, we're also going to take up our offering this morning. And, and I just want you to hear this as we do this. If you're new to Kensington, especially if you're new to church and just checking us out, you just need to know that this is not a part of the morning where we're trying to get anything out of you or anything from you. We have this moment and this part of a morning for one reason, because there's so many of us in this room that Jesus is our Lord Kensington is our church, and the world is our mission. And what we do in this moment enables us to do everything we do outside of these walls. So if that's you, then do what's appropriate in this moment. And if you're just here visiting, feel comfortable to just let that pass by. Check out your video. Liz was a beautiful mother. She loved it. She loved children. It was her lifelong dream to have a child. She adored Micah. She prayed over him. She loved him. She spent all her time with him, loved making him laugh. Relating to children, Liz just gave her all. Liz and I 
met at church we were attending at the time. I was a youth pastor, and she was looking to volunteer and help out with the youth group. Uh, she played many different instruments, and she led the worship for the teens at that time. So it was probably, you know, 25 years ago. Somehow 20 years passed, and you realize that she became your best friend. And most of it was due to raising how many youth coming through and relating to them and getting to love them together and being a part of everyone's life that you became more a part of each other's life. I was engaged, and we ended up breaking off the engagement. So I was heartbroken by that because I wanted to have children. And I talked for probably about eight years about it. You know, she's like, if I ever get to 40, we're still going to have children. Each of us can adopt our own children. We can help each other out. When she turned 40, we looked at adoption and found out it was outrageous. We talked to one of our friends who was a doctor, as she suggested doing it medically. Looked into it, and that was 3000 much better economically. So we decided to go ahead, and both of us tried it. Liz was very unsuccessful at first. She dealt with a couple miscarriages and things like that. I, on the other hand, got Josiah. Then she got pregnant. She was due in August 2018. Everything kind of changed when we went for her mid-pregnancy scan. I went along with her and her mother. We were there, and they said, hey, I think we found something. It looks like you might have a cyst on your ovaries. We don't know what it is, but we need to look into it. We found out she had, in fact, had stage four stomach cancer. Around 20 weeks, she started to have to do chemo with the baby. It was one of the only chemotherapies safe for her. They had to deliver Micah early. He was born July 2nd, and he was healthy. Liz's cancer progressed, and we had decided to stay home and that she was going to do hospice at home. We wanted her to be with the boys and be with the family because she was concerned for them. She was concerned for her family. Her first and foremost thought was that everyone knew her heart for them and that everyone was right with God. She started getting sicker and sicker, so it was less time that she could spend because she became very, very weak. But she at least was at home where she could hold her baby and love on Micah. Danny came to visit Liz and I at the house. I came in, shook hands, met everyone. There was two little beautiful babies there. Uh, the grandparents were there. And then uh, Jennifer uh, walked me down the hallway to see Elizabeth, which was her best friend. And we went right into the room, same layout as my childhood home as I used to sleep in, same exact thing. So I sat at the foot of the bed, I introduced myself to Elizabeth, we smiled, we talked, Jennifer sat down and we just started talking and we talked about life and Jesus. Elizabeth was in and out of consciousness at that point. And so we just kept talking and sometimes I'd grab her foot and we'd laugh and we'd have these conversations. And then at one point, Jennifer said, hey, we want to talk about the memorial service that we want to do. And the minute she said that, Elizabeth sat up in bed and she was so animated. Okay, this is what I want. And the service, I've already thought about it. I know everything. And she got so much energy. And at one point she looks at me and she said, listen, 
I don't care who does the sermon. I don't know if you're gonna do the service or someone else, it doesn't matter. But I've already written my sermon and this is what I want you to say. And she proceeded to, to go through her sermon, what she already written and what she wanted people to hear from her. And I didn't have anything to write down. So I'm like, oh Lord, make you know, let my memory hold these thoughts. It was really neat because Liz was very weak. But of course, when you talk about Jesus, she became very clear-minded, very strong. She was able to share her, her strong faith with him and how much she loved her Lord. And it was like someone who came in that was an old friend. When I got in my car and started driving, I thought, wow. I was, I was really moved by Elizabeth. I think I cried most of the way home. Um, when you see a young life, she's relatively young, you know, late 30s, early 40s, and you see kids and you see these things, and then you watch someone navigate it so powerfully. I don't know if she knew how powerful she was in her weakest state. The day of the funeral is really kind of a blur a little bit. Danny did the sermon. He did a beautiful job of sharing it. I had the honor to say, this is not my message. This is actually the message that I got from Elizabeth, and I'm going to give Elizabeth's message to you today. And then I proceeded to tell the message. What I learned from her sermon was amazing, actually, because uh, both her and her friend Jennifer were in ministry, their whole friendship, and they were in different kinds of ministry, so they connected with all different kinds of churches. And one of the passions of my heart has been unity and the first thing that Elizabeth said to me is make sure you tell everyone that we are to be unified in Christ God calls us to unification in John 17 and it re resonated with me because I've been thinking about that so much and then she proceeded to say two things that I thought really changed for me that our life is a vapor it's this mist that's what scripture says it's just this moment that is here and goes make sure you spend your life on the right things. And then the last part was, what are you pouring your life out for? What are you giving your life for? And she got so passionate at that point, and she said, we have to give our life for Christ. That is the only thing worth our life. All the time I've known Liz, I've learned so much about Jesus, how to give yourself to him every day and every moment, how to make Jesus a part of everything we do and include him in our thoughts and include him in our lives and include him in our relationships. She was a very peaceful, loving person. She gave everything she had and she'd be able to get anything done and organize anything. I hear daily how people miss her. She was a school counselor and I still get Facebooked from students that miss her and how they were impacted by how she loved them. More than anything, I want Micah to know that his mother was a woman of God and that her desire was that he grew up to be a man of God and not at age 20 or 30, but as a child on that he could be a man of God. Those kinds of lives and examples are the thing that actually have eternal value. Like that shaped my heart, that shaped my life. I barely know Elizabeth, still to this day, I hardly know her at all. 
But I can say that that moment in her faith changed me forever. And I was with her for what? 30 minutes of my life. And I'm different. I always wanted to be part of the crowd because I was safe, but it's not worth it. It's so much more, it's more fun too. Plus you get what you want in the end, hearing God say, you did what I wanted. You did what I asked. There's probably few things as painful in life as wanting to be in a relationship and it doesn't work out, having an engagement and then, it, and then it breaks off. And what you could do at that point is you could live the rest of your life just frustrated about that particular spider and chasing that particular spider. But instead, you've got these two women both experiencing the same kind of hurt and disappointment in life with the same opportunity to chase that one spider and instead decided, no, I think God would have me live for something bigger than that. And it starts by living in his presence to then learn his purposes. And, and hey, why don't we help each other out in that journey? Like, what an incredible story. Because I, part of what I'm worried about is that some of you could take this whole morning and this whole idea of just living life in the presence of Jesus and think, well, I, listen, man, I got stuff to do, and I'm just, I, that's all we're supposed to do, just like sit around and just read the Bible 24-7? Like, okay, what kind of a life is that? No. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I love about the two stories that we just read from Luke to John is that in Luke it said that Martha was distracted. I don't know if you caught it, but in John it said Martha served. Those are two very different words. But it's still, she's busy. She's doing stuff. She's active. She's not just sitting around doing nothing. But her activity now is coming out of a very different place. It's coming out of a place of having been in the presence of Jesus, making her life about Jesus, and then he guides, he directs, he says this is what it's about. Here's the danger for so many people in this world and maybe in this room is that here's what you're living your whole life for right here. And, and not, just, not just even the whole span of your 85 years. Truthfully, most of us are putting so much of our energy right now into this little part of it we call retirement, where we'll collect our seashells. Does that make any sense whatsoever to live that way and neglect all the rest of eternity? It makes no sense. You go, well, what do we do that's for eternity? Anything that's done for Christ, that's what lasts. Well, what do I do for him? You'll learn that by sitting in his presence. There's this poet, his name's C.T. Studd. Like, what a name, C.T. Studd. And C.T. Studd writes this famous poem and this line that says, only what's done for Christ will last. This is what he says. You probably, maybe you've recognized this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then there's this next line, a little lesser known, but I think even more powerful. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Here's the only real application I want to give you today, the to-do of the morning. I want to give you a few simple words of a prayer that I want you to take with you and pray and maybe make a commitment every single day for the rest of the series to pray this prayer and see if God doesn't start to speak back to you as a result of it. 
You go, I don't know how to pray. I'm going to give you the words. It's really simple. You just speak these to him. You say, Jesus, tune my heart to your presence and tune my hands to your purposes. And see if, as you begin to pray that to him every day, if he doesn't start to speak back to you about his presence and his purposes.